Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. So I don't talk about this much. I don't know if I ever talked about this on the podcast before, but long before I was in fraud prevention, I actually worked on a cruise ship in Alaska in the summers in college. It was a very small boat. It was not one of those massive cruise ships you see. It was kind of in between a private yacht, like the chartered, and a giant cruise ship. So we had 100 passengers, and we got to go to some really great places like nooks and crannies within Alaska's Southeast Passage. I got to cruise the inside passage of Alaska from Juneau to Ketchikan and Ketchikan to Juneau 37 times in three summers and got to see humpback whales do the most incredible things and glaciers calving and baby bears. It was just, it was a great experience. It was also <laughs> quite the life, full of life lessons because when you live with your coworkers and you work 18 hours a day for six weeks straight, and then you get two weeks off after that, there's just a lot of lessons to be learned about, you know, your work ethic and working with difficult people. <laughs> but I promise I'm bringing this back to my guest today. So you when in Alaska, we learned a lot about the history. You couldn't help but learn a lot about that, especially the gold rush of the 1800s. So a lot of people flocked to the west side of the United States, as well as up to Alaska, because there was gold found. And a lot of people wanted to get rich that way. They'd mine for gold. They'd go all the way up to Alaska. It was very dangerous at the time and mine for gold. But one lesson that I remember learning from that time was that the majority of people that made the most money during the gold rush were the people who provided the supplies. They provided the tools for mining gold. They provided resources and support for the miners, whether that was lodging or food or, you know, entertainment, all kinds of things. And so that's actually what I thought of when talking with my guest today, because Crypto and Web3 and the metaverse is kind of like a modern day gold rush. And there are a lot of people mining for Bitcoin, right? Just like mining for gold. But there's a lot of other things that are necessary, industries that are being created to support that mining and trading and everything else that comes out of crypto and all of that. And one of those areas that's booming right now is compliance and fraud prevention as well and trust and safety within the crypto market, as well as Web3, the metaverse, NFTs, etc. And that is why I wanted to talk to Stephen Sargent today. He's the founder and chief Web3 officer of Airdropped. He's built a great community and resource library for AML and compliance professionals who are either currently or hope to work in crypto compliance and investigations. So Stephen first caught my attention with his informative and thoughtful LinkedIn content. I reached out and once we got on a call, we instantly clicked. In a way, he's the me for the crypto and Web3 compliance industry. Poor guy. <laughs> I don't mean to compare him to me, but that's kind of the best way to explain it. He's kind of become 
the person that people go to to ask questions or learn from or to build community and collaborate with each other because this is a new frontier to keep with my analogy of the gold rush. <laughs> so until recently, he was on the front lines of crypto compliance as the deputy manager of AML compliance for Bitfinex, one of the largest platforms for digital asset and crypto trading. While in the field, Stephen recognized a need for community collaboration and education. So he founded Airdrop, which provides content and community to this industry while also working behind the scenes with trusted solution providers to help demonstrate their value to his audience. I really wanted Stephen to join me on Fraudology for a few reasons. Number one, the lines between AML and compliance and fraud are getting more blurry every day. AML is the compliance arm of suspicious activity, and fraud prevention is really preventing a monetary loss specifically to your company and its users. But there is a lot of overlap there more than ever, as there are new business models and new tactics and methods for leveraging different systems and tools for committing fraud. It's just there's a lot of overlap. The second reason was because I know there are several Fraudology listeners that are either interested in a role in Web3 or their current company is starting to offer or ask about Web3, crypto, NFTs, or the metaverse. And then lastly, I just really think he's someone you will want to connect with and learn from. So today in this conversation, we talk about Stephen's unique career path, the convergence and growing need for compliance and fraud prevention within crypto, Web3, metaverse, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe Web3 is just the fastest way of saying that. Advice he has for anti-fraud professionals to learn more about fraud and compliance in crypto. And then he provided some of his favorite stories and examples of the investigations process using blockchain and other investigative tools. I really think you're going to enjoy this. I think that for those people who have their eye on Web3 and wanting to provide some kind of support and resources in AML and fraud prevention within that industry, that this could be a really big boon and opportunity for you. And so I really hope and I believe that you will enjoy this conversation that I had with Stephen Sargent. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. 
Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Well, today we are joined by Stephen Sargent, and I have been wanting to have him on the podcast for a while. I think I've mentioned him a few times on previous episodes. I've really enjoyed his content on LinkedIn and his podcast and other things. And it's really nice to find someone else who's also creating content to support an industry that's similar. So Stephen, welcome to Fraudology. Chris, thank you so much. Your content is amazing. And it's hard to do content in such a conservative arena like risk mitigation, compliance, and fraud. And you really found your nuance doing such a great job here. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. And I think for me, I just don't think any of it should be boring. And I know you feel the same way because <laughs> it's not. These are not just our careers, right? These are things that people in our industry, it's part of who they are. It's a big part of our personalities and others. So it's more than just a job to most of us. And when we tell the story to people that aren't in the industry, they're like glued, they're like glued to their seat listening. And I'm like, yeah, this boring. I work in this boring industry. I tell them once they're like, that's what you do for a living. I'm like, yeah, like <laughs> you just trace cryptocurrency on the blockchain. This is everyone the one I'm doing. And they're like, no, can you tell us more stories? <laughs> so I'm excited to be here and maybe tell some never heard before stories. <laughs> yeah, I think if anything, we're going to have the hardest time just keeping it to one episode, but I would love to have you back again. And I think hopefully this experience will be good for you and you'll want to come back again, but we'll hit a lot of things. I mean, one of the reasons why I started following you and really getting engaged by your content is that I do see this Venn diagram a little bit of AML compliance and fraud, but then also crypto so much so. And I know we'll talk about that more in a minute, but first it's probably the most fair to my listeners. I know who you are, but they may not. So how did you get started in compliance and then crypto and just your journey. What's interesting is I actually wanted to get started in crypto, not compliance. So whereas most people transition from compliance to get into crypto, it was a little bit different story. I was working for a large fintech in Canada, DNH. They were actually the company that cuts all the checks for the big banks. And this was about five years ago. So you could see, you know, at that time, checks probably weren't going to be going up much in revenue. And they started acquiring a bunch of fintechs. So I was like, oh, it's May 2. I remember the date, May 2015. I was like, I need to start learning more about what fintechs are. So I started listening to all the podcasts and everybody in talking about fintechs was talking about blockchain. So Mm. just to kind of put it in perspective, Bitcoin was at about $700. And Around the Coin was one of the main podcasts I would listen to. And one of the people on the host had mentioned sales and technical skills, but he also mentioned compliance because he was big in the payments industry Mm. years prior to that. And he's like, there's one thing I know that's coming in crypto, it's going to be compliance. And I reached out to him. And within 10 minutes, Faisal Khan was his name. He sent me an email with all the things I could do to get into compliance and then into cryptocurrency. And I was like, wow, like, you know, even reach out to your friends. They're not responding within 10 minutes. I was like, from that point, I was like, I'm going to do everything on this list. One of them was taking ACAMS, which is the the Association for Anti-Money Laundering Specialists. And he was one thing he also said was to document my journey. 
And that's why I created content so early in my career. So in 2017, I was working at HSBC, which is a large international bank doing AML investigations. And I created my first podcast actually back then called AML Audio. And it was just me and my friend in the, in the uh, local library in the greeter and recording podcasts. And then eventually I would create a podcast. I actually did some events around cryptocurrency and AML. And one of those people that helped me with one of the events was Peter Wark who went on to become the CCO of Bitfinex, which is a large international cryptocurrency exchange. And when they were building out their AML department, I was one of the first people that they called. So I always could encourage your audience to document their journey and talk about what, they, mm -hmm. what they're interested in, whether they're doing that job or not. You kind of draw the opportunities and attract those opportunities to you. Wow. I actually didn't know that full story. And that's really fascinating to me because I was completely opposite, right? But I didn't start documenting or talking about it publicly. I mean... I worked for a trade association, so obviously talked a lot about it with them, but not publicly until just a few years ago. But I like that advice. And I always say that the world needs more people talking about what they do. Now, I know that not everyone in fraud or compliance can talk about details, but there's ways to get around it, right? There's, you know, as my grandfather used to say, it's not really like the most eloquent thing, but if he ain't said nothing, he ain't said nothing, right? So if you want to not say the company name or any identifying features, that's okay. Okay. But unfortunately, I know not everyone can do that, but that's a really good start. Maybe it's even like just journaling it for yourself and then planning on publishing it later if you can't do it or having like an anonymous Twitter or something like that. There's tons of ways around that. I think there's a lot of fear, right? Like my first year, I'm talking about <laughs> what AML is and people are like, well, you just started it out. So it was just fun to document what I was learning. So mm. I wasn't scared of being wrong. I was making sure everything was an opinion. But I'll, I would also invite experts to add in their insights. Like here, this is what I think of it. Like, what do you guys think? I'm new to this industry. Could someone help fill me in on certain things? And what I've realized is the people that actually see you doing things want to contribute. They want to help mm -hmm. you rise. And it, it's actually useful for them because they want to talk about their expertise as well. So, yeah. but you have to get past that fear. It took a while for even me to get past that fear. But once you're past it, you realize that people actually want to see you, support you and see you win. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that say like, you don't know what you don't know. And that's very true. But you also don't know what other people don't know. And I think to your point, like I've actually been surprised how many times I say something that to me is just like, oh yeah, I've known that for years. And people that work for very large companies or have been around them to, oh my gosh, I didn't know that because we all have different experiences. We're all starting in different places. Different companies have different issues that you become more of an expert on than others. So to your point, like, so what if you just started? Like you might create an audience of people who are also just starting, or maybe there's people that have been in it for two years, but they haven't done what you're doing. And so they'll learn. So I, I just love that so much. I think to your first point, yeah, I was creating actually like almost a guideline because there was nobody creating content yes. at that time, other than, <laughs> you know, powerful articles and, right. and ACFs. Yes. But there's no one creating content like, hey, what certificates should I take to get into this industry? So when I started putting out the content I was about what I was learning, people started reaching out to me via DMs asking me all these questions. So instead of just answering them, I would then post my answers as new content. Mm. Like, hey, this is what I've learned. And these are the certificates I took. And then it just keeps up. People keep on asking you questions. So it creates an endless supply of content. Yeah. And I think that the other differentiator um, with you specifically is that there are some people who create content, but I feel like there's this air of arrogance in the things that they say. And I think, I hope I'm the same way as well. Like you have an air of humility, right? And to me, it becomes very clear that you are sharing this to help others, not to promote your, like to lift up your own brand. 
Now, granted, that second part's going to happen regardless, but your true intention is to be of help and use to people before you're saying, like, other than look at how much I know or look at how great I am. And that makes a difference. It does. Really, all I'm doing is starting the conversations that maybe people were scared of starting online. Or what I've realized is people are dying to talk about these things just as much as I am. And they're just waiting for somebody else to start the conversation so they can jump in with their two cents. And instead of writing a whole post of their thoughts. So it's been, and I think you do a great job, even in the comments of just really leaving thoughtful comments. And it shows that you've read the whole post. It shows that you have your own expertise and your own insights. And I think people feed off of comments like that. That's engagement that you can't pay for anywhere. Yeah. At some point I'm going to do, I, I mean, I was planning on doing it for F4 and I still will for my fearless female fraud fighter group, but we're just kind of taking a unplanned hiatus for the summer. But to anyone who's listening, who's like, oh yeah, I haven't heard about that in a while. But uh, that was my plan. It was to create some just stepping stones using LinkedIn for your career. Cause I know it's helped me so much. It's helped you, et cetera. But if you don't feel confident writing posts right away, or if you, or if you do, but you want to either widen your audience or you just want to engage with other people, like I love to find people who create great content. And I know that not only am I like providing my two cents and maybe people will be like, oh, I want to follow her, but more so I know that it helps your algorithm and it helps you. And to me, that's just as important as helping myself because it, it all goes around, comes around. That's awesome. So speaking of this, and we kind of talked about did recently leave like your full-time corporate, I mean, quote unquote America, but you're in Canada. So like is corporate North America thing to create community and you've been creating masterclasses for people who want to learn more about crypto. You are working with at least one sponsor I know to create a podcast for them, which is the public key for chain analysis. I know there's, you've got a lot going on and you would think both suffer from wanting to do all the things and create all the things and have such great ideas. But why did you decide to move from the day-to-day being on the front lines of crypto compliance to supporting and building this community that maybe didn't totally exist aside from ACAMS, which is more of like a formal trade association with certifications and all of that. And what's been the most rewarding part so far? No, to be honest, like I didn't build the community. The community really built me. To be, and, mm. and I'm not just saying that to be like cliche. My thought process at and a lot last year, I was working with a couple other organizations, and I realized I don't really work well with people. I really just love to do things my own way. Similar to what you said, I just love to do everything, and it's hard to do everything when you have other people that you have to think about and you have to worry about whether it be financial or support otherwise. And for years, I've been telling companies about LinkedIn and creating content, and I was like. At one point, I was like, you know what? It's just theory. I'm talking a lot of theory. And I was like, let me just create content on a regular basis and see what happens. And, you know, start off a post every three weeks. I was, I'm always doing pretty frequent content. But then I was like, oh, man, all these ideas start to rush in my head. I just post every day. Anything that came to my head, I'd post about. And I saw how much traction I was getting. I was like, seeing how it was actually helping people. And, you know, as I said, I was pitching a lot of companies on a lot of different ideas. And a lot of companies like, yeah, it works. So you're doing great. But we don't really care about doing content marketing. We'd rather pay to go to a big conference and, and get a booth. And I understand why it makes sense. But when I came across Chainalysis, they've always been pretty forward thinking. They are an industry leader. Pretty safe in saying that they're the best company in the industry when it comes to blockchain analytics. And they were like, hmm, the podcast is something that we were always talking about. And podcasts, I do my own podcast. And it's it's laborsome to do that internally, right? You'd have to draw in a lot of resources or and assign somebody to do it. 
So I was lucky enough to work with them. And I, I realized like I just love creating content. So now I'm doing content for companies where I can do interviews. The master classes was just simply, I love the certifications, all the companies are coming out. I love subject matter expertise. But I, what I realized is a lot of this is mindset work. A lot of the things that I saw successful people doing in the industry was based on nuances that had nothing to do with actual subject matter expertise. So I was mm. like, I can help teach people those nuances. And I've had support from a lot of great sponsors. Some really great people have helping me out. Alex Cote, Ash Ayer, Ruslan, Nikosov. Some really great people are just helping me out because they see the same value in helping others and just mm. seeing what's, what can be created. And that's what led me to here. I just really love investigations. But when you're doing investigations, you, eventually, even if it's cryptocurrency or e-commerce, at the end of the day, it just turns into an investigation every day doing the same investigation. So when I'm creating, it's like I can be endless in some of the ideas I come up with. And that's the path I chose. Well, and it, there is so much value to people who do the work to listen to someone who's done it before. I've known people who have come outside of an industry and said, oh, there's a need for a publication or a conference or whatever in this industry, and I'm going to come create it. And they do a fine job, but there is such a huge difference. And I've used this analogy so much. I'm sure anyone listening is like rolling their eyes. But to me, it's a difference between driving the car and reading the owner's manual. And there's just some things that you're going to know about the car, like when to break at a stoplight and how the child locks work and all that stuff that you're not going to know if you just read the owner's manual. That doesn't mean that there's not value in that because there's also things that people who drive the car wouldn't know that people who rode the owner's manual <laughs> would. So they're different perspectives, right? But because you have driven that car before, I think that's why so many people in your industry come to you and you've built this community. So I, and I feel like that's been similar to my experience as well. Those of us who are trained in investigations can smell bullshit from a mile away. We're trained often in social engineering tactics and a lot of social engineering tactics are similar to sales best practices and books and such. So we really are picky about who we're going to listen to. So I think that adds a lot of value. Taking a right turn, because I want to get to like the stuff that you and I love to nerd out about. <laughs> I mean, in addition to content creating, because I sometimes it can feel kind of lonely and like, <laughs> I'm the only one. Who do I bounce this off of? I want to talk a little bit about AML compliance because I feel like for so long, they've been two separate things, AML compliance and then fraud and investigations, as well as fraud prevention. But more and more with different business models and other things, they're really, to me, like becoming something that shouldn't be as siloed. There's just a lot of overlaps there. Often they're separate positions, separate departments within a company, or one is cared a little bit more than the other within a company. But just for people listening who have just only been in fraud prevention, what are some of the like core tenants of AML? I think my, my previous boss, Peter Warwick, always said that fraud is AML in motion. I hope I paraphrase that properly, but it really is, right? Like it's AML in motion. So to your point, I think the silos are huge, especially in the big banks. And some of the banks, like you can't even get access to the fraud case. So if you're working in AML case, you see that they have some kind of fraud <laughs> alert or a case and literally it's grayed out. You cannot access it or gain any details. And I think that's a little bit detrimental to the investigations. I think more banks are moving away from the siloed approach but it's very difficult. For me, the core tenets of AML is like, what is the source of funds? That's always going to go back to, to AML. It's like, what is the source of funds? Where did your customer arrive from these source of funds? And are they from illicit proceeds? The second thing is like, is it going to meet the regulatory standards? AML is heavily regulated for institutions, whether you're a fintech, MSB, or a large financial institution. And that's why it kind of turns into a checkboxing exercise 
not to the detriment of the companies. I, I don't think they go out and say, hey, let's just check the box and put in our paper and, and keep it moving. But it turns into like you have to cover so many bases, whether it's risk mitigation, whether did you identify suspicious activity? Did you report on it? And if you didn't report on it, documenting why you didn't report on it, it, you almost lose yourself. You almost go further and further away from actually identifying and hopefully deterring suspicious activity and money laundering because a lot of these requirements and regulations are so onerous. And those are really the core tenants. And then thinking about AML is like, what are they doing with the money? Are they actually laundering the money? Is what they're doing what they're supposed to be doing with their money? So we report a lot on suspicious activity, but suspicious activity doesn't actually mean that they're committing money laundering, right? Like think of your kids. It doesn't mean like, just because they don't tell you the truth, it doesn't mean that they're lying or covering up something. It just means that they may not want to give you all the information. And the same holds true to your customers, right? Especially now we see what happens with overzealous governments. I'm in Canada. Many of your audience probably heard about the Freedom Convoy where the government just said, hey, we're going to go after people's crypto addresses, bank accounts, because they don't have the same beliefs that we do. And it was literally reversed and highly criticized because all of a sudden now, if you don't have the same beliefs about whether or not your freedom is being infringed, they can financially cripple you, which is what they were attempting to do is garner as much information or put pressure on you by basically keeping you out of the financial ecosystem. And I think if I said this three years ago, people would be like, oh, that's just for criminals. Normal people don't care about the government's oversight. But I think we saw in the last couple of years in, in various countries, many first world countries, what it means when the government has a certain agenda and you may not be following that agenda. Wow. How do I even follow that up? I don't know. But <laughs> I think it's very similar in front of the fact that like you, for you guys, you're documenting suspicious activity, but you can't just look at the suspicious activity without looking at all of the factors, right? Like what was the weather there? Sometimes that matters, right? Or like what's going on in that country? Is it a holiday? Is that why they're transferring out money? Like the context, it matters so much in all of that. I love that you said that. It's so important, especially in the crypto industry. If I sent Bitcoin to a crypto exchange and then removed it the next day, you're like, hmm, maybe that Bitcoin is suspicious. So like we've seen with like different protocol upgrades that people were sending those Bitcoin on that certain date is because they were going to get other coins when the blockchain forked. But if you don't know that information, then it's like, oh, this is suspicious. And we see mm -hmm. that in traditional banking as well. As you said, whether it's a weather, holiday, whether you're, you're supporting a certain movement, it gets really tricky. You really have to know a lot of what's going on. You want a, a great content creator in the AML field, one of the best right now. And, and I don't want to butcher her last name, but I think it's still Liano. She talked about all the different functions it is to be an AML investigator. You're not just an AML investigator. You're a lawyer. You know, you're, you're all these different things. You're a critical thinker. And she really broke down. You're a judge. It's like, yeah, being an AML investigator means you have to make a lot of the hard decisions because once again, you're seen as a cost center. And I think we're moving further away from that perspective. But there, there, you're seen as a cost center to most organizations because they have to spend so much money and resources making sure that they can keep up with the regulatory requirements. Whereas fraud is almost seen like a cost savings mechanism for the most part, right? Companies are realizing, hey, we don't have to invest in all these other things. We can just stop losing money from these frauds or credit card chargebacks or account takeovers that lead to liability and lawsuits by having the proper fraud prevention put in place. So I, I think more and more we see though that if you have a robust AML program, your ed fraud program, you're getting access to things like well-known investors, right? You're getting access to 
different financial ecosystems that companies that don't put in those proper protocols do not get access to more fruitful partnerships. So as much as it seems like a cost center, we see some of the most compliant, especially as you're getting into crypto, NFTs, Web3, some of the most compliant programs are ones that are securing these big, amazing deals because companies are looking to invest. I look at the Kevin O'Leary, who I believe runs WonderFi. They just acquired two huge Bitcoin exchanges here in Canada. And I remember one podcast, he probably said the word compliance 57 times. And I feel like as those companies met the regulatory and compliance regulations, he was able to now acquire them and move into the field. But he didn't do that until he made sure that those two T's were crossed. Wow. So there's two things that you said that I really want to dive into. One is I really wish sometimes that I could have like a, I don't know, a two-way camera, like listening or seeing my listeners' faces, like when certain things are said, because especially when you said AML is seen as a cost center, but fraud is not within crypto. That was like, wait, what? Because we're used to being a cost center for e-commerce. We are, various companies have done better jobs than others at explaining to leadership that like, yes, there is an upfront cost, but but the down the road, I mean, similarly to what you just said about companies that you see being the most compliant, being the most successful, the companies I see that have some of the best fraud programs and have invested in more than most are the ones that are most successful in the front end. It's just that not many companies talk about what they're doing for fraud. So I know, well, of course they're successful because they're doing right. this, 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 and this, or they're using this company versus that company or Oh, wow. Yeah. A lot of customers are happier now that they changed fraud process or fraud products. And I know that behind the scenes, but they don't. Right. And so that can be challenging for it. But I'd love for you to like explain a little bit more about within crypto, how you've seen fraud be seen as something that really is almost being seen more as a revenue center that, or more important anyway than even complying with regulations. Well, if you look at the biggest cryptocurrency exchanges, right, like really, what are they going to be losing money on? Mm. Usually they're going to be losing money on lawsuits. And a lot of those lawsuits are because of consumer protection, right? Somebody mm. took over account, they lost their money, and now you have to pay out loss. Like a lot of that is based on consumer protection. When I think of Web3 and crypto, it's all about decentralization. But if you think and look at things like NFTs, it's built on communities, right? Just like a lot of big brands are built on communities. And if these people investing in your community, whether it's a token or an NFT, or stocks or bonds, they're investing in the integrity of your organization. Mm. Now, if every time that person in your community wants to buy something or every time they log in to their Discord, they're being fraudulently taken advantage of, they have phishing bots, you're going to lose your community, which is pretty much financing your whole ecosystem. And so it's the same thing like we see with the Board 8 Yacht Club is like people are always going after that community. They're losing their prize. If the prize of your community is this NFT that's worth a lot of money, but people keep on losing those NFTs with no recourse, fraud prevention is completely should be your, your first thing that you should think of, as well as AML and compliance. Because when something happens, the first thing most people turn to is government, regulators, law enforcement. And if those companies that you, know, that you suffer these losses from don't already have a relationship how quickly is law enforcement or even the rest of the industry? If you, And I look at this is because I've been a part of a lot of partnerships and public-private groups where I see companies that have no intention, no regard to engage in the best practices or engage with helping out companies when hacks happen. When hacks happen to them, they're in the discords, they're in the telegrams begging for help, but you haven't established a relationship. So how quickly do you think everyone's going to move now 
now that it's your time to face and now it's your time you want to make your customers whole. So you have to start by being preventive. You have to start by joining conversations when it might not be financially beneficial for you. This is a long-term game. And if you don't want to put a small investment up front to make sure that your community is safe, if your community doesn't feel safe with you, what do you, what would you do, Carice, if you were living in a community that you didn't feel your family, friends, or kids were safe on, you're going to move to another community. And that's exactly what we're going to see with the biggest projects. If you don't have the gated community, if you don't have security, if you don't have law enforcement, and everyone's, everyone that's living in that community is being taken advantage of or robbed, you're probably going to move. And that's what these companies have to realize. If they don't put on the right protocols, it, it's great right now, or maybe six months ago when everyone's making money, they don't care about fraud. They don't care about consumer protection. They don't care if they lose a couple thousand dollars. But now that their, their crypto investment, their stock and tech investments are all down 80%, 70%, 90%, trust me, they want retribution if someone steals their NFT. Yes. And I think that that is very interesting because there's a difference between e-commerce and crypto. I mean, there's a lot of differences, but one of them is in e-commerce, there isn't this overarching rules or regulation. They're not regulations, right? But they're from set by the card brand. They're assigning liability. So consumers often feel like, oh, well, my bank is going to protect me. They may not know that that money is then being taken from the merchant at oftentimes for every $1, it's $3.60 in losses to that company in, in the back end. But once it goes through a chargeback, et cetera. So most consumers don't know that. They're just like, oh, I have consumer protection right. through my bank. They'll protect me. So we haven't had to deal with that as much in e-commerce. And I think that that's both a blessing and a curse. And that could be, I mean, I talked about this quite a bit on a Thursday episode and I don't remember which one, but it was about a month ago. It was in the beginning of June when the New York Times had the article about OpenSea. And kind of my rule with the podcast with naming companies is I don't name any unless they've been in a headline. And so fortunately or unfortunately for OpenSea, but at least a little bit where to your point, when there isn't this, when customers can't just pick up the phone and call their bank and initiate a chargeback, they're now calling reporters. They're now calling the legal entities. They're now saying like, and they are blaming the platform, the marketplace yep. that had their money. And we could debate that all day long, but I was trying to actually search for a quote from the CEO in that article, OpenSea, because I certainly don't want to paraphrase and get it wrong. But I think it was something to the effect of similar to what the CEO of Zelle said that then resulted in so many lawsuits as well is kind of like, oh, well, there's nothing we can do about it. And unfortunately, E-commerce is proven. Well, yeah, there is. There's actually a lot you can do from transaction monitoring to looking at data, et cetera. And my understanding of AML is you're often looking at the data after it happens, after the transfers happen. Right. But for fraud, we're looking at it before that happens and saying, eh, this looks really risky and not allowing it to happen at all. Or we're investing in consumer education. You can't assume that consumers know that you're never going to ping them in WhatsApp and ask them and tell them that there's this great investment opportunity or ping them in WhatsApp and say, oh my gosh, your account, something's wrong or they're going to get a text message. You need to re-enter your username and password here. Like you need to be educating them. I did this whole episode on the marketplace that did kind of an accidental A-B test on educating their customers when they had a big ATO attack versus just doing everything behind the scenes. And not only did they see more adoption 
and continuing on taking responsibility of security when they educated their customers, but they saw 10x more spend by those customers because they felt like they were part of that community. They felt like, okay, this company's talking to me like I'm an adult. They're telling me I have some shared responsibility. I just want to know what that is. Not all consumers are that are, will take that on in their responsibility, but especially in crypto when they know if I'm a victim of an account takeover or a phishing scam or others, there may not be recourse. So I am going to take more onus. So those companies need to be doing a mix of internal investments in systems and processes, and they're not all equal. And we both know that better than anyone, though I'm sure everyone in sales would like to think that they are. Some are better than others and for different reasons, but also in that partnership, making your consumers like almost deputizing them to know what to look for. And too often companies don't want to mention that they have fraud, right? Too often companies don't want to say, hey, we're seeing this this is what's happening. But if we could just normalize it a little bit more, I think there'd be less because they wouldn't be doing things so behind the scenes. And the reason why they can afford to do behind the scenes, I feel in e-commerce versus crypto is that nobody knows the transactions that were charged on their credit card. It's internal. It's protected by confidentiality. Oh, maybe, yeah. a, maybe a whistleblower might be able to blow the top off of certain things, but it's protected. In the OpenSea case, now remember OpenSea, an employee of OpenSea just got charged for insider, basically insider trader front running. Basically what they were doing is that they knew which NFT projects were going to be listed in the featured page, which obviously gets more exposure mm. than others. And then they would just go ahead and purchase them using another wallet. And then obviously once it got featured, the price of that NFT project would go up and they would make some money. The problem isn't that's what took place. The problem is, is that the blockchain is transparent and <laughs> not somebody at OpenSea, not law enforcement, not law authorities figured it out. Somebody in the community figured out because somebody in the community can now look at the blockchain they can see how the transactions are moving. They can put it together. And that's why these companies aren't going to be for long, be able to shrug this off as like, oh, we couldn't do anything. If a layperson that's not has nothing to do with your company is able to figure this out, that means you have the resources, you have the capabilities. And to be quite honest, a lot of these companies have blockchain analytics tools that were a lot more powerful than this person that figured this insider trading out was. And you're not going to be able to hide behind that for very long. And we could see consumer protection at the biggest, one of the biggest crypto compliance conferences, Chainalysis conference in New York. Consumer protection was one of the biggest themes because we're seeing is that these companies have to take measures. There's automation and there's tools to allow them to. They're not going to be able to use that excuse, nor will people be buying that excuse for very long. Well, and trust is such a currency, right? We saw that when marketplaces started to be a thing and I had Robert Capps and Eric Bowles from the beginning days of StubHub on a few weeks ago. And I think Robert was the one that said it too, is that they recognized very quickly that they had to have their consumers trust or else they'd go somewhere else. And I think obviously crypto is the same way. I found it not so ironic, but interesting that two days after that New York Times article came out, I was actually looking to connect with somebody from OpenSea that was that looked like maybe their job was fraud, but didn't really have the same title. It was like special projects or something like that. And I noticed that they had just posted two days after the New York Times article came out two senior leadership positions in trust and safety. Right. And I was like, well, it's a shame that that's happening after a public interview, because obviously I know and we all know that they were getting whispers of those problems. Their call centers were getting yeah. a lot of those problems for months and months, but at least it happened. But I think that also to your point, 
because there have been so many companies coming up in crypto and NFT in the last two years, they all want to survive. They don't want to be that story that's like the one that nobody wants to be, right? Like this cautionary tale. And so instead they say they're looking at others to go, okay, we don't want to be like that. And like when I had Matt Vega on the podcast several months yeah. ago, from Candy Digital. I like who, that episode. <laughs> if you guys have not met in person, make sure you remind me to introduce you because I think you two would geek out a lot. And Matt is an awesome human, but, and as are you. So I think you'd get along well. But he was saying, and I can't remember if it was on or off the episode, but I know he'd be okay with me sharing this part, that they intentionally made a closed loop marketplace right. so that they nope. could watch the activity before opening it up because they were seeing what was going on on open marketplaces, on the marketplaces that didn't, had had an open loop and you could take an NFT from anywhere and put it on their marketplace. And there was no verification that it existed or that it wasn't stolen or that it wasn't, you know, all those things. And to open seas, they could do a better job. I don't think there's any secret that they could do a better job. But like, imagine, imagine having a hand sanitizer store in 2018. You start the store, mm. the corporate companies come in, maybe buy some hand sanitizer and you're doing well, you're making ends meet, you're maybe a little bit struggling. And then the pandemic hits. And now people are knocking at your door. You have to hire a hundred new employees to make them in. You have to now produce more hand sanitizer. So now the quality of the hand sanitizer is going down. You don't have time to vet the employees that you've now hired. People are buying hand sanitizer, walking at your store and selling it for 18 times the amount. You, you, there's cash just showing about in the back office. They never had time to do that. They never had time to say like, let's start this slow. The market just completely exploded. And we saw that with some of the biggest cryptocurrency exchanges back in 2017. The markets just completely exploded. It was a cash grab and a land grab. And sometimes you don't have time. And there is ways you could do it properly. And there's companies that are doing it properly. But I think at the time, they took what they had at the time, which is probably the biggest time to be in that market. Mm -hmm. And they ran with it. But if they don't start putting in, if they don't start slowly letting people in slowly and making sure they cover themselves, they're going to be faced with more lawsuits and more of the other companies that are doing closed loop before open loop systems. It's a really good point. I often say similar to some other things structurally within the internet, like with the card brands and things like that, like a lot of the technology and quotation marks for payments on the rails is so archaic because nobody was saying, oh, in 20 years, there's going to be this thing called <laughs> the internet. Yeah. And we need to be prepared. And same with COVID. That's such a good point. And also, as you're talking, I'm starting to think about like, oh, yeah, that makes sense why they would do that and everything. Unfortunately, too many companies learn in hindsight. They right. learn after their oh shit moment, as I say, where they're like, oh shit, now we have chargebacks, now we have losses. For this case, it's not just the lawsuits, it's the customer trust. And that customer trust, to your point just a few minutes ago, people are moving to other communities and they write it off pretty quickly. And one of my guests from a couple of years, I mean, I think one of the very first I don't know, probably the first 20 episodes of Fraudology, Kevin Lee, at least I think he said, I get confused because I had another podcast before this as well, like <laughs> you. So I don't know if you are like, which podcast was this on? But Kevin Lee once said, and he started the risk department at Square. He's worked at Google. He's worked at Facebook on you know, trust and safety. He's now at SIFT. And his track coach used to tell them that trust is earned in drops, but lost in buckets. And I could not apply more to commerce. It could not apply more to crypto where you're earning trust in little bits. But once something happens, 
it's gone. And you don't necessarily have a second chance with consumers, especially in this space. So I think it's such a good point. And I know we're spending a lot of time on this, but that's because I think it's really important for oftentimes when I talk to people that are listening to fraudology, they're often in the fraud prevention space, but they want to enter crypto, but they're not exactly sure how or what the issues are or all of that. So I think all of this is really helpful. Also, there's a lot of solution providers that want to start entering into that market as well for transaction monitoring, identity verification, et cetera. So I think that for thinking of all those people listening, I think this part is helpful for them to understand why companies are realizing that they need to invest in fraud prevention and identity as well as AML and compliance. Yeah, I completely agree. So talking about like when it comes to, well, and I guess we kind of talked about this a little bit, but when it comes to crypto and NFTs, what is the function of AML compliance professionals? Like what are some common use cases that you often observe? I think just like from crypto, I'll go crypto to traditional, right? Like right. what you see in crypto is like real-time investigation. So similar to fraud, cryptocurrency exchanges are open 24-hour 24 hour marketplaces. And usually you're conducting the investigations at the same time the transaction is being processed. Whereas when you're working with banks, a lot of times the investigations are done in remediation. So six months, seven months after the process. Whereas in crypto, you're seeing the transactions a lot of the times using blockchain links tools where these funds are going to. So you have an opportunity before you even approve it. And I'm talking about centralized exchanges. You have the opportunity before you approve or conduct the withdrawal to actually ask further questions, do investigations, see where the funds have been coming from, where you just don't have that luxury for the most part when you're working with a traditional financial institution. Another thing is non-face-to-face onboarding. Now, I know even traditional banks and e-commerce, this is no stranger to them. We're moving more to non-face-to-face onboarding. But in crypto, you have things like the darknet market, where a lot of these illicit actors are literally giving you playbooks on how to try to skirt around some of the AML, KYC, and onboarding protocols that a lot of crypto exchanges have. So they'll even give you stolen or or modified ID then say, hey, this can beat this exchange. This ID can get you past this exchange. And another thing with crypto, you could just go get your grandmother to take a picture with her passport and say it's her setting up the account. And although there is tactics and tools that can be used, it's very hard to detect proxy and even synthetic ID, right? If I break into my local, if I work at a local transportation department and I have access to making my own driver's license, it's going to be pretty tough to be able to identify that because at the same time, it is a legitimate documentation. It is going to pass a lot of the tools because it is legitimate documentation, even though the names and the pictures might be changed by somebody on the inside or by illicit actors. And I think the one thing that's a little bit different is information sharing. Going back to the previous point, is that the blockchains for the most part are transparent. So people can see the movements. Case in point is that when OFAC sanctions an entity, everyone can see who's transacted with that entity using Bitcoin or Ethereum or other cryptocurrencies. But when OFAC sanctions a name, you don't know if that name is dealing with a JP Morgan or a CIBC or HSB or Scotiabank. You have no idea. So they have the luxury of a little bit more time to decide how they're going to investigate the case, but in the cryptocurrency, you got the regulators and the authorities have the same line of sight to elicit activity as you do. So they know day one, the same time you do, they're using the same blockchain and links tools. So you're kind of against the wire there where you have to start now filing against those cases or researching. And they want to know why you haven't been filing on the past or have you filed reports on the past. So although I don't think the majority of these authorities have the resources to really 
penalize people for not filing in a certain way, they do have access and visibility to your exposure. So if your exchange, your cryptocurrency exchange is dealing directly with a sanctioned institution and you have frequent transactions from there, it's going to start to erase suspicion as to what you're doing, who are your customers that you're allowing to interact with these sanctions entities or illicit actors. So I'm glad you brought that up again as far as the transparency on the blockchain, because that was something I meant to ask you about earlier as well, is that something that's very different, right? There's a lot of, especially when blockchain, and I was smiling when you said like around 2015, that was when a lot of payments and fintech people were talking about blockchain. I heard about it first, I think in 2013 or 14. And I sometimes, if I think about it at all, I will kick myself for not, you know, investing just a couple hundred bucks in Bitcoin. But like at that point, I was such a traditionalist. I was like, who would ever want to do this for this reason, that reason, et cetera. But then again, I was also the person who said, who got off the phone with Mark Zuckerberg in 2007 and said, this guy thinks he's going to be the next MySpace. So don't trust me for like all the like market analysis of futurism all the time. Like I'm I'm really good in this space when it comes to valuations and and vendors, et cetera, but not really anything else in the market. But there's two conflicting thoughts, right? One is because it's decentralized, it's anonymous. And then there's others that are like, well, no, we can actually track everything. And I know that there's, I mean, again, this could be a three hour episode so easily. And so we'll just kind of take like understanding AML compliance for this episode. And then next one, we can get dive even more. But what can you see? What are the benefits of some of the analytics tools that you're able to use where I would assume it helps you a lot so you don't do a ton of legwork? But what are the types of things that you can see on the blockchain that maybe you couldn't if it was a credit card payment or ACH or a digital wallet? For transparent blockchains like Ethereum and Bitcoin and several others other than like privacy coins, mm. you can see everything. So it's technically anonymous. Like if I used a private wallet and sent you funds to your private wallet, nobody's going to know that me and Steven and Carice interacted. But if you go deposit those funds, let's say to a cryptocurrency exchange to your own account, it's all of a sudden now they have a point of reference that that address that deposited is your address. So now your address is now identifiable. So it's synonymous is like now if local authorities went to that exchange and subpoenaed them and said, hey, this person received funds from an illicit actor, which would be me. They'd say, who is this person? Provide me all their ID. Obviously, they provide your information. And then what law enforcement does is just work backwards from certain checkpoints. Mm -hmm. So now they can now question you, which would probably lead to some information about me, which would lead to where I got the funds from. They have to use certain checkpoints. That's why things like cryptocurrency exchanges, there's so much pressure regulation-wise and KYC-wise to obtain that information. We're seeing with new regulations, especially in the EU and something called a travel rule, which mm -hmm. now if I was to send from my personal wallet at a cryptocurrency or my wallet at a cryptocurrency exchange to you, that cryptocurrency exchange would now want beneficiary information of who I'm sending it to and that basic information that we see a lot with traditional financial institutions. So the, definitely synonymous is that once you're able to identify though that that's Carice's wallet, now you can see all of Carice's transactions all the way back to 2013, when you shouldn't be buying more Bitcoin or some Bitcoin. So that's how <laughs> law enforcement has the, once they can start making some of those attributions using blockchain analytics tools, they have the benefit of the time. You can't change your transactions that you did back in 2015, but they can trace them all the way back then. And that's where you see some of the biggest cases is a lot of people back in 2015, when these blockchain analytics tools weren't really up and running to the degree that they are now, not that it was anonymous, but now that that kind of veil has been uncloaked, we can see how it's easy to use these analytics tools to be able to trace certain actors. Uh, I so badly want to ask you about that 
couple where the woman was kind of a rapper-ish that still, and I think actually though, unfortunately that had to do with maybe your past employer coming through. So I don't know (laughs) how much you can say and not say. So that's why I'm not going to ask you also time-wise, but that's what that makes me think of, right? Because there were, and I'm going to tell you it wrong, but basically there were funds that they were holding and, and trying not to spend because they knew it could probably get tracked. And they assumed that maybe people weren't looking or whatever. And they started to do a little, little tiny bits of movement, which flagged them all together. And I know that within, I think they got arrested on a Friday and by Sunday, Netflix had already bought the rights to their story. <laughs> that was right around when the Tinder swindler and all of that and right. inventing Anna was so big. And so Netflix was like, oh, there's a fun story, but that can be for next episode with us. Cause I mean, depending on what you can and can't say, but that just made me think of it. So, and I know I did not put that ahead of time on the outline. So I <laughs> Yeah, it that's expects uh, you to say much. <laughs> it, was before, it was before my time, but I like I like my house. <laughs> I don't think I challenged the cryptocurrency exchanges legal team with anything. I don't think really nope. have any other insights than anyone else reading the information because a certain hack happened before I, I was right. working there. What I would say though is that what really you see a lot too is that illicit actors, including in that case, is they leave a lot of trails right, off comes. the blockchain, mm. off the blockchain, right? So. What you see with like people that are so notorious in the underworld is they don't change their name all the time. So funny enough, similar to most rappers, they keep the same name because that's the name that has clout. So yep. even in online dark net marketplaces, they want to keep that same name. But sometimes they use that names and email addresses. They use that names as online monikers when they're setting up account at cryptocurrency exchanges. And we've seen that with another Netflix episode. I can't remember the name of it. But it was regarding the Quadriga CX, the person that supposedly died. In India, the founder, Gerald Cotton. So mm-hmm. it, there was little crumbs, as you said, breadcrumbs that people leave online that these big blockchain analytics schools can tap into the blockchain to kind of mirror those things together. And it usually paints a really vivid story once all the puzzle pieces are put together and law enforcement's involved. Well, and I think the other piece too, as far as like the anonymity of of blockchain and just Web3 in general, is that there are a lot of things where people are saying, we don't want to, we should be anonymous. We shouldn't have to give our information. We shouldn't have to, you know, when we sign up for, and obviously there's different types of entities within crypto, right? So some of them require more than others. I was mentioning to you before we recorded that there's one company I work with on the kind of identity space that has been doing some really interesting things in Web3 where maybe that platform, you know, whether it's metaverse or others doesn't require name, address, phone, et cetera. But if you want extra points in the game, or if you want extra access in the social media or something like that, you have to give pieces of your information. And I do think that as there's more expectations from consumers to be protected, I would assume that they know, okay, we need to be willing to trade a little bit of our PII for that security. And I think what we realized too is that people don't care as much as about privacy as they think they do, right? People talk a lot about it. It makes for good <laughs> panel discussions. Yeah. But many of us are still going to treat our email address to save 10% off at Bed Bath & Beyond. So I, I don't buy into this. I'm so privacy centric. I see definitely some use cases, but if we have a chance to win a new to another RAV4, like we're filling out that full information at the auto show. Oh my gosh. I've been saying that for years that people have been trading their privacy for convenience and for benefits for years. I mean, ever since apps and even before that, right? Like, yeah, filling out a drawing form on an auto show and then not understanding why so many telemarketers (laughs) Telemarketers. are calling. (laughs) 
<laughs> Someone I dated long ago, it was like, how do you not know that that's why everybody's calling you? <laughs> they see the toilet super up and then, you know, the eyes line up. And right? Yes, right. The touch <laughs> keys, the, yeah, all the things. Same with conferences. Like some of the biggest merchants, they're like, it's not worth a pen or whatever else freebie, even though there are some very nice ones sometimes. It's not worth that to me to getting my badge scanned because then right. I know I'm going to get called all the time. You know, it's all a game. We all trade something for something else even if it's free. So wrapping this up, I want to leave on kind of a fun hangout. I'd love to hear, and I mean, I want to talk so much more, so we will definitely have you on soon, but I would love to hear maybe one of the most wildest or most memorable cases that you've worked on or that you've heard about recently. You're so good at explaining things. I feel like that's, isn't that what Einstein said? Like, you know, the true geniuses are the ones that can explain complex things easily. And that's why I really enjoy listening to you. And I'm sure everyone here does too. But what's something that would be fascinating or interesting that maybe others would walk away going, huh, that's really cool that when you're doing these kinds of investigations, you can piece these things together. Cool. There's a couple. One of them is a missing Bitcoin or missing crypto queen. Jamie Bartlett in the UK does a great podcast. Mm -hmm. He has a book out about it. She was just added to the FBI wanted list. She created like a billion dollar Ponzi scheme with one coin. So just think of the biggest, and this is right when, you know, Bitcoin was just starting to gain and trend upwards in regards to value. And they basically advertise as the next Bitcoin killer. And at the time, like you're thinking 2016, 2017, you could have told anyone anything like crypto, like here, here's a million dollars. Here's my life savings. Because I saw Bitcoin go from a hundred dollars to 1300, mm. 1300 to 13,000. And by the end of the day, a lot of it is greed, but they did a really great job and she's never been able to have been found. And she just got joined to the FBI wanted list. Quickly, I'll talk about the, in Norway, there was the, one of the richest men in Norway had a kidnapping of his wife. And in the ransom, they demanded $10 million of Monero, which is a privacy coin. Problem is, is that not many crypto exchanges have $10 million of Monero lying mm. around. So it seemed really, really odd. And I don't think investigators quite believed the story from the get because they were doing an investigation before they actually publicized it. I don't think she's ever been found. And the husband, I think, and an accomplice was eventually charged in her disappearance. But it's interesting. It was the amount of crypto and the type of crypto that they had requested that made that interesting because it just didn't make sense to get your hands on crypto back. And this was like three years ago was a little bit tough, but $10 million worth of Monero or 10 million Monero. I don't know if it was 10 million worth of Monero, 10 million Monero. It's a well-known cryptocurrency, but like people aren't holding on to a ton of it. Like they would, it would probably take all the crypto exchanges, the big crypto exchanges in the industry to facilitate that transaction. And they'd have to do it strategically and so not to tank or manipulate the market. So I think that's what really caught investigators. And I think many of the cryptocurrency exchanges were probably reached out to by law enforcement working on that case. And yeah, they really think Norway's not the biggest player in the game when it comes to cryptocurrency no. uh, back at that time, especially. So that was one of the most interesting cases that wasn't well known as the OneCoin incident, but it's yeah. actually one of the most interesting cases with regards to ransomware. We see a lot more ransomwares and kidnappings now, legit cases of that. Right. Uh, conferences, SIM swaps. I think that's part of your fraud world too. SIM swaps at conferences is huge oh, now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's huge now. We've um, been seeing sim, sim swaps for years yeah. before those of you in crypto have. Yeah, I know. Been, we're, yeah. Like freshy, we're freshies too. We're like, what's a SIM swap? <laughs> but like, the first thing I just called my phone company, like, do not change. Even my wife's calling, do not change. I want to, first of all, I want to keep my phone number forever. Right. And so, yeah. And just to help out maybe some of the fraud fighting listeners, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Yeah, no. If you're interested in crypto, 
There's just so many easy ways now. Information is pretty free. But one thing I would suggest is take a crypto vacation. Take one week. Everyone gets at least two, three weeks vacation, hopefully in fraud. Take one week and just go dive into crypto. Use some of the protocols. As you said, sign up for some of the services. As a customer, you'll be able to see exactly where you fit your fraud skills within the ecosystem just by signing up and using some of the services. You'll probably see the glaring red flags. And that's the best way to learn like, hey, where do my transferable skills fit into this place? And the reality is, is there's no crypto fraud people. Like I'm a crypto AML person. We have a lot of great crypto compliance reg people in this industry, but I don't know any crypto fraud. Like if I had to say, who's the crypto fraud person, I don't think you could come up with a person. And it may be like, as I said, like maybe more about crypto than the majority, but there's people that could really just assert themselves by learning a little bit more than crypto than the next person. But what I've seen, even in traditional FIs, is that people go from fraud to AML because they think they're going to make more money. Whereas like, if I really liked fraud, I would just really put my stake in the ground as like, hey, I'm a fraud AML or traditional expert and really build a personal brand community around that. Because I think people try to transition into AML where, hey, it might be a little bit more exciting. You might be able to continue with some of those investigations. But if you really love fraud, that's usually what a lot of these Web3 crypto companies are going to hire first before they start hiring the AML and compliance programs. So anytime you see a company raise money, their first positions are going to be fraud positions. Okay, I hope everybody like wrote that down. I can actually think of a couple really great crypto fraud people. However, they aren't like in the limelight, right? They aren't sharing information. They aren't content creating. There's at least one that I keep writing his name down because we talked about it in Vegas at MRC about bringing him on the podcast and I keep forgetting, but I think he'd be great. You know, I know that not everybody can talk about it publicly, but obviously Matt right. has learned a lot in the last year and other people have too, but I see it as a huge opportunity as well. So definitely want to you know bring that to that. So wrapping it all up, Stephen, I want everyone who's listening to Fraudology to follow you on LinkedIn. I will absolutely be putting your LinkedIn in the show notes as I do with all my guests, but what are some other ways that people can find you or support you? I'm on LinkedIn all day, every day. Most people now LinkedIn message me before they email me because they know I'll get lost with email. Emails. Yep. They just send me a LinkedIn message. I respond within like my notifications are set for LinkedIn. That's the place I hang out. I might get into a little bit of TikTok later on, but I actually just put recently put a link tree in my LinkedIn. Oh, so it goes to everything that I'm doing, whether it's one-on-one interview sessions with my friend Alex Cote, whether it's the master classes, cryptocurrency certification training, my free podcasts and YouTube videos, everything is there. So that's the best place until I come up finally complete my website after three uh, years of paying my, thousands of dollars to people that did nothing. I, I'm hoping to actually finish an actual, I, everyone that's created the website knows that feeling. So oh my gosh, yes. Money because every time it gets to the point where you actually have to fill in the words, you're like, ah, you know, can somebody do that for me? I don't actually really want to do the work there. And that's where it stops. I and you're feel already way too soon right now. Yes. You're already $1,500 <laughs> yeah. in the hole. You just leave it. And then you just have no website and your pockets are a little bit lighter. Yes. My, my website has not been updated in way too long. (laughs) It's not even really accurate. I, it's almost embarrassing how old it looks. And I have gone through that process once or twice where like, yeah, I've paid someone and then they're waiting on me and it's like, ah, what do I say? And then time fizzles out. So I feel way too seen then, but I will add your LinkedIn as well as your link tree uh, links way too many times saying links, uh, <laughs> link tree, LinkedIn links to the show notes and 
really hope that we continue to get to work together. I think that we both are kindred spirits in a lot of ways and kind of the opposite side of the coin. And I think that my community can learn a lot from you and vice versa. So thank you so much for your time and sharing your expertise. And like I said, I don't want it to be too long before you come back. So we'll make sure that happens. Thank you so much. I'll save some stories for next time, but I really appreciate it. I think you're a unicorn in this space. I think any content creator realizes how much effort, time, and passion has to really go into something like a podcast or any other content creation because I don't think people realize when they see certain panels, they're like, oh, well, you got paid to do that right. after, four, after four years of four hour days <laughs> of just doing stuff I love. But yeah, like that panel doesn't really match the, the time put in, but it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we're creating communities that we hope can go out and do certain things. And yeah. I think you're creating a blueprint for others that, you know, that they have the expertise but they just want to do something a little bit more creative. You're creating that blueprint. And I think that's priceless. Oh, thank you. I mean, I hope so. I have, I've made enough mistakes anyways that I don't want anyone else to have to make the same ones. But yeah, I mean, for the longest time, my consultancy was kind of funding my content creation and fun. And now I'm after several years, I'm able to kind of balance that out a little bit more, but it's definitely because of awesome humans like you that really help contribute to thought leadership and others within the space. So thank you again. And I look forward to working with you again soon. Awesome. Thanks so much. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.